Hello and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Madel Romero, your host and an assistant professor at the Northern Illinois University College of Law. I'm talking with Lara Bazelon today, professor of law and director of the Criminal Juvenile Justice Clinic and the Racial Justice Clinic at the University of San Francisco School of Law. She's also a contributing writer for Slate and Politico magazine. We're talking with her today about her forthcoming article in the Ohio State Journal Criminal Law. It's coming out, I believe, shortly this year, um, Victims' Rights from a Restorative Perspective that she co-authored with Bruce Green at the Fordham University School of Law. And this is a really fascinating paper. Thank you so much for taking the time um, to join me and talk about this. Thank you for having me and for doing this podcast. Fantastic. Thank you. So, you know, this is a really important topic and it's been, you know, victims' rights, especially when we're talking about sexual assault, this sort of topic and the thinking on this has been evolving really quickly, especially in the past few years, even I can think of some, you know, cases out of California with regard to the Stanford rapist or um, even in the context of Me Too, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But what I want to do and start with talking about is how a lot of this victims' rights um, sort of movement and sort of the, well, let me backtrack. How does a victim's narrative get surrendered in the criminal adjudicative process? You know, there's sort of this process by which it's handed over to a prosecutor and they let go of it and the adjudicative process just runs with it. Could you just explain that for people who are unfamiliar with that process? Victims are thought in the general public to be at the center and a driving force of a prosecutor's case. But in fact, if you talk to a lot of victims who have been through the criminal justice process, what they'll tell you is that their stories were taken away from them and they were sidelined. And what that means really is that when a victim is called to testify, the prosecutor is eliciting very specific information that is tailored to prove the elements of the offense. And it's not the victim's story so much as it's the prosecutor's story, which the prosecutor wants to tell the jury as part of his or her theory to convict. And then, of course, when you get to cross-examination, the whole point is to cast doubt on the victim to show that the victim is not reliable or not telling the truth. And then the story is sliced and diced up even further. And then once the victim is not on the witness stand anymore, they are not allowed generally to be in the courtroom to see what is transpiring. Sometimes they are kept out of the loop about what ultimately happens to their case. And they just have this very limited circumscribed role to play. And that's true in the small fraction of cases that go to trial. Then you have to think about the vast majority of cases that don't. So more than 95% of cases either plead out or just get disposed of some other way. And if a case never even gets to the prosecutorial stage, what that means is that the victim's story was heard and then it was determined that there wasn't a basis to go forward. So there is no public narrative. And in the context of guilty pleas, which are far more common than trials, the victim isn't part of that negotiation process. That's a process that takes place between the prosecutor and the defense attorney. And so the victim is really left out of that and often not informed of what the outcome is until long after it's established. So I think a lot of this process happens because of this concept that you talk about at the very beginning of your paper of um, essentializing crime victims. Could you tell us more about what happens with essentializing and how that sort of flattens the victim experience? The thinking is that all victims are the same and that they speak with one voice and they want this common goal, which is for the person who harmed them to be punished to the maximum extent possible. 
victims are essentialized in that sense. And it's not true because victims are a diverse group and want different things. They're also essentialized in terms of their public identity. So I think one way of giving an example of this that makes the point is the Central Park jogger case, which, of course, as we know, got an enormous amount of attention at the time and still continues to generate headlines most recently with the miniseries When They See Us. In that case, we're talking about a white woman who was brutally raped and nearly killed by a stranger while jogging in the park. And because of who she was and because of her status, this wealthy white woman, she was a stockbroker, she was attractive, she was young, the case got all this outsized attention. That same night and even that same month, dozens of women were raped and assaulted in the New York City area, and none of their cases got any attention. And they were all women of color. I don't think that's an accident. It tends to be that the media focuses an extreme amount of attention on a certain kind of victim, who in fact, statistically, is a very rare victim. In other words, often a white woman attacked by a male stranger of color. And then the vast majority of victims who do not fit that profile are never recognized, their stories aren't told, and this narrative forms around this one particular stereotype that doesn't actually have a um, empirical basis. In other words, it, this, it revolves, the narrative revolves around a kind of victim who in fact is statistically a, a rare kind of victim. So this essentializing happens and really sort of renders victims a monolith is what it sounds like. And this is rather unfortunate because victims across the board don't necessarily have the same experiences, nor do they necessarily have, as your paper points out, um, the same goals or even necessarily the same desires. Uh, You know, some of them don't want a part of the adversary process. Some of them don't want anything to do with, you know, helping to prosecute a case or anything like that, where they're the victim they might need to testify. Um, What recourse do they have if they don't really want to participate? Can they just opt not to help the prosecution? Or what happens when that happens? Oftentimes they don't have that option. Here's another example, and it's extreme, but it's real. The district attorney in Orleans Parish, which encompasses New Orleans, is a man named Leon Canazero. And what Leon Canazero does when victims of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and other victims, including rape victims, don't want to cooperate, is that he will jail them on a material witness warrant and refuse to release them until they testify. Now that's extreme, but in a lot of cases, there is tremendous pressure put on victims to, once they come forward, carry through with the criminal adjudicatory process. And so once that machine gets in motion, it's pretty difficult in a lot of jurisdictions to extricate yourself. Although, again, the New Orleans example is is extreme. But, you know, I think that that's actually a tool that most prosecutors could potentially have in their tool belts to use against victims, essentially. They could subpoena them, a victim could not desire to testify, and they could be jailed, which is a really scary potential consequence. And there are a lot of other parts of the adjudicative process that do seem still very scary. Yeah, and actually, it's interesting, as you were asking me that question, I was just flashing back to my own experience as a federal public defender. I I worked in that job in Los Angeles for seven years from 2001 to 2008, and I had a case in which I was defending somebody who was accused of human trafficking. And one of his victims was a 14-year-old girl, one of his alleged victims. And 
she refused to testify against him. And she was 14. And it wasn't the prosecutor. It was the judge, a federal judge who bullied and berated her. She continued to say she didn't want to testify. And then he jailed her for contempt for 15 months. A 14 year old? Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. And then she did accede to his demands and she testified at the retrial. But just watching that experience was so jarring. The way that he treated her, this this young, young person, basically just barely a teenager, and the threatening and the bullying to force her to testify and then putting her in jail because she wouldn't, that's another example of what can happen to victims. So... I want to talk about at least some of the early efforts to reform some of this process, at least in some effort to benefit crime victims. There are lots of uh, points of tension between victims' rights and the judicatory pro- adjudicative process, excuse me. Um, but since the 1970s, there have been some efforts at reform, right? Yes, there have been a lot of efforts at reform. And I think what has happened is that there's been this really interesting alliance between women's rights groups and feminists and people who were more positioned to be centrist and and tough on crime. That said, they included Republicans and Democrats because in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the early aughts, the dominant theme was who could be tougher on crime. And Democrats were always afraid of being called soft on crime. So they sort of would overcorrect. But in this alliance, what was happening was that feminists were rightly pointing out that the system often really mistreated victims of sexual assault and that the laws were antiquated. They required corroboration. There were all kinds of ways to probe a victim's sexual history that were irrelevant and offensive and invasive and intrusive. And so they pushed very hard and successfully to amend the laws so that victims wouldn't be so abused and mistreated and so that the default to the default really was to disbelieve them would be eradicated. And along with that went a push to punish more severely and prosecute more consistently people who were accused of causing sexual violence. And so that movement, which became known as the Victims' Rights Movement, was an alliance between the various stakeholders that I mentioned, and it was very powerful. And just to give you a sense of how it still has power, there is something called Marcy's Law, which is the law in many, many states. And it was spearheaded by the brother of a murder victim, who is a very wealthy man. And that law requires prosecutors to do all kinds of things, including keep the victims apprised of the status of the case, allow victims to be heard at sentencing, allow victims to have input at various stages in the process. And that's a more recent piece of legislation that has been picked up in a number of states across the U.S. Now, I found this 1982 task force narrative of how the adjudicatory process at the time um, functioned to harm crime victims really fascinating. I wasn't really aware of that sort of history and what the task force did. So could you tell the audience a little bit more about this sort of composite narrative that the task force got together? Right. So this was a task force that was created under the administration of President Ronald Reagan, and it set forth a composite victim. And basically, this victim, who was an amalgamation of various different fact patterns and not an actual person, was her story was told in this report, and it was very, very extreme, all of the things that happened to her and all of the ways that she was mistreated. And she, this this composite character, was essentialized 
in the same way that, say, the Central Park jogger was essentialized and held out as an example of how the system had failed victims catastrophically over decades and how we needed to put these reforms in place. And many of the reforms that were being advocated for were reforms that we would now associate with mass incarceration. So creating new crimes, charging crimes more frequently, extending penalties, punishing more people more often and more severely for longer periods of time. So what recommendations came out of this task force report and narrative? The recommendations were, and and again, I think it's important to understand that this report had the backing of a lot of people, including women's rights groups and Democrats. The recommendations were to do away with some of the barriers to making sex offenses so difficult to prosecute, but it went further than that. And it made other recommendations that were pretty extreme, including doing away with the exclusionary rule, which, as you know is a fundamental part of the criminal justice system and a crucial constitutional protection that provides that when the constable bumbles, the evidence is suppressed. In other words, when the police do something wrong in obtaining evidence, then that evidence can't be used at trial. So the report used the idea that it was acting in the cause of victims to promote a larger agenda. And part of that agenda, part, not all, was around eroding constitutional rights. So Marcy's Law and other sorts of reforms follow up after that, I believe. Could you talk a little bit more about some of the reforms specifically otherwise that you see in California? Because California is sort of this sort of leading state when it comes to um, victims' rights from what I know and from what I can gather from your paper. So is California doing anything else that's rather unique here? Well, I think, although I might be incorrect, that Marcy's Law originated in California. I think that Marcy herself was a crime victim in California. She was murdered by her ex-boyfriend who stalked and killed her. And in addition to the provisions of that law, what California has done for a long time is provide a forum for victims to speak at sentencing. It's called a victim impact statement. And now all 50 states have it. California was one of the earlier adopters. But essentially, it provides that at sentencing, the victim has an absolute right to be heard. And we saw that, I think, in a viral way in the Stanford rape case when the victim, who we now know to be Chanel Miller, stood up in court at Brock Turner's sentencing and gave her victim impact statement which BuzzFeed then published and millions and millions of people read and reposted and retweeted and generated a movement in California that led to the amendment of certain laws and also the ouster of that trial judge. So it sounds like a lot of these reforms seem really, really focused on keeping an adversarial process in place to some extent, but also punishing offenders, you know, in the most harsh way possible. Um, And this doesn't necessarily, you know, help a lot of victims, as you mentioned in your paper. And you come up with this very interesting counter narrative of how the judicatory process harms crime victims, um, sort of in counterpoint to the 1982 sort of um, composite narrative that was come up, that was um, sort of constructed um, during the Reagan administration. So could you tell us a little bit more about this counter narrative that you construct in the paper to address what the real harms are there? So my co-author, Bruce Green, and I thought it would be interesting to create our own composite narrative in response to the 1982 
crime task force report that had their composite victim. And their composite victim was the victim of a terrible, violent stranger assault and had all of these characteristics that were sort of endemic to mistreatment of victims and why we really needed a very harsh, swift, and severe criminal process to achieve justice. So in our composite, what we did was we looked at the statistics of who who victims are, by and large, in sexual assault cases. And we looked at the federal data. And as it turns out, 78% of sexual assault victims know the person who harmed them. Often they're in intimate partner relationships or dating relationships. Very rarely are these assaults or crimes interracial. They're mostly intraracial, meaning they happen within the same racial or ethnic group. And often the two people, the victim and the offender, live in the same community. So in our composite, we went with those statistics and our composite victim, it was someone that she knew with whom she was in some kind of pre-existing relationship. And there were various reasons why, although she initially reported it, she did not want to continue to go through with the prosecution, including that she felt ultimately that the impact on her community, their community, would be outsized. And what she didn't want to see was this person go to prison. And then we talk about all of the pressures that the system put on our composite victim to continue to go forward and what that trial experience was like for her. And in our example, the person that she accused was acquitted. So there was just the added injury to the victim of having gone through this incredibly intense, traumatic experience in court only to have the jury return a not guilty verdict. So I think this composite narrative that you um, came up with with Bruce um, in, in counterpoint to this 1982 narrative is really interesting in that it really reveals what you term in your paper the, the sorts of underemphasized harms to victims, five of them in particular. Um, the first that it denies victims the opportunity to pursue restorative justice. The second that this denies victims agency and autonomy. The third being that there's no real control that a victim is able to retain over their own story. The fourth being that there is um, no right to protection from self-harm, unlike that which a you know, defendant gets to have. And the fifth being that you know, a victim's privacy is rather eroded. And these are really underemphasized in the 1982 composite report. And why do you think these harms have been so historically underemphasized? I think it's because for victims who are ill-served by the process, it's been difficult to have a platform to speak out about those experiences and have their own voices and their own stories told. And part of that is because we're talking about groups that tend to be marginalized and underserved and stories that the media tends to not be interested in covering. And also because there's something just so shameful and horrible about having been dragged through a process like that unwillingly that nobody really wants to relive by going public and retelling it in a, in a public way. So I think that's a big part of it. I also think, again, that it goes back to this idea that we essentialize victims and that when we think about sort of the, the ultimate or the archetypal victim, we think of a woman like the Central Park jogger and what the public was really wanting and demanding was a pound of flesh, this idea being that they were going to come down really hard 
on these terrible people who had initiated this gang assault, these black and brown teenagers, and send this really strong message that this kind of what they called wilding would not be tolerated. And that was a narrative that was very compelling at the time that this crime occurred and continued to be extremely compelling well into the 21st century to the point where we even had a term for offenders called super predators, where there was this idea, which has now been completely debunked, that there was a certain kind of young man. And what they really meant was young black man, although they didn't say that explicitly, who was crawling out of an urban ghetto, remorseless, this horrible sort of serial marauder and killer. And I think that narrative had a powerful grasp on the public imagination. And it really wasn't until, I think, in some ways, the rise of the wrongful conviction movement, and first of all, the exposure of the Central Park Five case as a wrongful conviction that destroyed the five lives of the teenagers that were charged, but also did no good to the victim, that exposed this countervailing narrative where you had victims coming forward in that context and saying how used up and abused they felt by the system. And I think it was really at that point that some people started to consider, oh, okay, there's another side to this story, maybe not even in only these high profile wrongful conviction cases, but also downstream that this is a more common story than the sensationalized untrue story that we've been told for so long. And I have to wonder too, and and you, you touch on this too, that with the advent of this concept of the super predator, how much of you know, this essentializing has happened mainly for, you know, political gain, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, it, it seems rather convenient something to, and, and something to rely on, I think, to really, um, you know, gain favor with certain constituencies, I'd imagine. Yes. And I think what's really important to understand about super predators and tough on crime policies is that this is really a very thinly disguised attempt to criminalize and punish and lock up people of color. Because what the public narrative is about these cases often, and particularly most, I think, problematically in sexual assault cases, is to present the offender as this rapacious, over-sexualized, out-of-control Black man. And that, of course, goes all the way back to slavery and these really pernicious stereotypes that have been perpetuating about Black men since they were dragged here from Africa and enslaved 400 years ago. And I think it is really important that a lot of what has been happening since the 1950s and the rise of the tough on crime movement has been driven by a real racialization of crime. So do you think the recent Me Too movement, you know, let me backtrack, you know, it's raised, like you say in your paper, a lot of awareness about sexual assault, its pervasiveness, um, its harmfulness. Um, Do you think it's actually been helpful with regard to advancing um, the interests of victims or has it been um, more harmful than anything? I think it really depends. The Me Too movement, on the one hand, has brought a lot of progress. And I think it is really important to know that men in positions of extreme power, and I'm thinking about people like 
Harvey Weinstein and Matt Lauer and Bill Cosby, who used their money and their power and their celebrity to serially abuse and assault women are exposed and held to account and that there are reforms taking place within those spaces that are long overdue. So I think when we're talking about these extreme imbalances of power and extreme imbalances in, in, in wealth and celebrity status, Me Too has been enormously helpful. But it's also to some degree been problematic because like all movements, there is a tendency to overcorrect. And so there are big questions. You know, what is the statute of limitations on Me Too accusations? What is the threshold at which we decide that an accusation is worthy of belief? Is it enough to just say that something happened? I don't think a bare accusation can be enough. And yet it seems sometimes in certain cases that is enough to really get the story going in a way that kind of spirals out of control. And then you also, it it raises real questions again of downstream effects where there have been people calling for more laws and more punishments. And the problem is that if you're somebody like me, who spent their whole life defending people who don't have any money, who are charged with crimes, what you know is that it's those people, most of all, who are going to get impacted. And that on some level, what this is contributing to is mass incarceration. And so that's where I have the biggest concern. And then a secondary concern that I have is that I don't want Me Too to be co-opted by the victims' rights movement in the same way that sort of feminist causes of that generation were co-opted. And once again, to be essentializing victims and emphasizing again and again that we want the most harshest possible punishment, whereas it ignores the fact that there are some victims who actually don't want that. And there are some cases where there are other alternatives that are worth considering rather than sort of defaulting to, I want my pound of flesh. And so that's where I feel like I have the most concerns. Now, I was a prosecutor for a few years, directly out of law school, and I was always surprised at some of the attitudes I'd see amongst some of my colleagues, where occasionally, you know, we'd have to prosecute a sexual assault case, and a victim would not want to testify, they wouldn't want to cooperate. And they they couldn't understand why a victim wouldn't want to see the most punitive outcome possible. Um, And I think a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their minds around that. Could you explain why... You know, maybe give some examples or explain why a victim might not necessarily want to see, um, you know, the person who assaulted them be sent to prison for the rest of their lives or have their lives destroyed otherwise. So I'll give you one example that I know to be true. And then one example that I admit is speculative. The example that I know to be true is there is an activist lawyer named Sujatha Baliga, who runs an organization called Impact Justice. And she got the one of the 2019 MacArthur Genius Grants for her work around restorative justice. And her story, what she's told publicly, is that she was sexually abused as a child by someone in her family. And what she says is, because of their status in the community, uh, they were a, a marginalized family. They didn't have any money. She was worried about all kinds of consequences, ranging from economic consequences to immigration consequences to her family being torn apart. She didn't want interference by the criminal justice system. A lot of people, until they hear that story, 
find that almost impossible to believe. And they think if there is ever a time for the criminal justice system to intervene, it would certainly be in a case of child abuse or incest. And absolutely, that's what we have created the system for, and we need to punish those people. And this is someone who is a survivor of that crime and that violence saying that that was emphatically what she didn't want and what she wished instead was that her family had had the option of restorative justice, although they hadn't. So that's an example that is grounded in a public account of a victim. The example that I have as sort of my second example, which I concede is speculative, is the debacle at the Kavanaugh hearings. Mm. And I always wondered if Brett Kavanaugh had handled it differently, whether it might have been less disastrous and whether he might have said something, you know, rather than crying and screaming and yelling and accusing the Democrats of a witch hunt and a conspiracy and basically performing in this really infantile and unjudicial-like manner for Donald Trump, he had said words to the effect of, I drank way too much in high school and college. I drank so much that I vomited. I drank so much that I sometimes blacked out. I don't have any memory of mistreating Dr. Ford, but then again, I don't have a memory of a lot of things that I did when I was really drunk. And if I did do that to her, I am profoundly sorry. I wonder what the repercussions would have been. And I guess I wonder if Dr. Ford would have taken some solace from that rather than what she was subjected to, which was, you know, threats on her life, not from him, of course, but just from his incredibly angry supporters and this situation that pitted her account against his so that one of them had to be a liar. And I don't think it was politically palatable for Brett Kavanaugh to say that, although in my heart, I wonder if that's the truth, because Donald Trump would have found that to be a completely unacceptable attitude. And as we know, the only thing that's acceptable to him when you're accused of sexual assault is to deny it, say the woman is far too ugly for you to have even been interested in, and just flatly discredit the person and refuse to accept any responsibility or take it seriously. Mm -hmm. And under that standard, and given the stakes, I think Brett Kavanaugh felt that he had to behave in, in the way that he behaved. And that's unfortunate. That is unfortunate. But again, all this to say, I'm not sure it was ever her goal to put him through what he went through. I don't think that's what she wanted. She didn't want to come forward. She certainly didn't want to go through that. And I don't think she wanted that for him. I always wondered, and I wrote about it at the time, whether if restorative justice had been politically possible or legally possible, a recourse for them, that would have been a much, much better outcome than what actually happened. It's hard to think of a worse outcome. So let's talk about what you mean by restorative justice for those of us who might not be familiar with the term or the concept. Restorative justice is, is a different way of thinking about harm and accountability, and it reframes it. So rather than thinking what crime was committed, who did it, and what should we do to this person, you think who was harmed, what are that person's needs, and how can we best meet those needs? So it revolves around the idea of reckoning and accountability that doesn't result in incarceration. And it can operate in a number of different ways. There can be victim-offender dialogues where the person who's committed the harm and the person who has been harmed sit down with a, a trained facilitator and talk through what happened. It can also exist in a larger healing circle that involves friends and family and members of the community also weighing in. So there are different ways for it to operate. But the goal is to dig down into the root causes of the crime, what made the person do what they did, how to make them understand in a very visceral way the impact that it had, 
how to figure out a way to try to make the person they harmed whole again, and to come forward with a cooperative plan that will result in this not happening again. And it's a very intensive kind of communication. And it's not just the dialogues or the circles that I'm talking about. These programs are rigorous and they involve therapy and substance abuse counseling and vocational training and education, very specific benchmarks that people have to meet to successfully complete the programs. But they're really centered around the idea that reckoning with a wrong and offering an apology that's heartfelt and also based in a deep-seated appreciation for what one has done to a victim is a better way to deal with crime than the way that we traditionally deal with it, both from the perspective of the satisfaction of victims and also from the perspective of recidivism. So let's talk about two real-world examples that you include toward the end of your paper. And one comes out of um, Common Justice, which is you know centered and headquartered in Brooklyn. And the other project is Restore, which is in Pima County, Arizona. So let's start talking about the, the Brooklyn project here and sort of the results of that and how that's been working out there. The Brooklyn project is fascinating and it's singular because it's in partnership with Eric Gonzalez, who is the DA of Kings County, which encompasses Brooklyn. The Common Justice nonprofit is run by a woman named Daniel Sered, and they work in partnership. Gonzalez funnels cases to Common Justice, and those cases involve young men, usually men, between the ages of 16 and 26, who are charged with very serious violent felonies. And when I say very serious, I mean stabbings, maimings, really brutal assaults, and attempted murder. Most often, the victims are people who are known to the person who committed the offense. And rather than go through the traditional process, which of course would involve leveling these incredibly serious charges and sending people to prison for long stretches of time, impact justice takes on the case instead. And the victim and the offender go through a very intensive restorative process. And then the person who has committed the offense is also required to do the long list of things that I was talking to you about before in terms of job training and in terms of therapy and substance abuse, all to get to a point where it's pretty clear that this person is no longer dangerous, not to that victim and not not to anyone else. And what's remarkable about common justice is that it's been in, in, in existence for 10 years. So before Gonzalez was the DA. It was in operation with a DA named Ken Thompson, who sadly has passed away, but was a wonderful person and very progressive. And it has an incredibly low recidivism rate of less than 10%. And when you compare the recidivism rate in common justice with the recidivism rate of similar cases that work their way through the traditional system, it's not even close. The, the rate of recidivism is just so much lower in the common justice program. That's incredible. Now, let's talk about Restore real quick out of Pima County. So Restore existed for a brief period of time under a federal grant. And when the grant dried up, unfortunately, so did the program. Mm -hmm. It was a really remarkable program as well. It was designed by a psychologist named Dr. Mary Koss, who's done a great deal of work in uh, sexual offense research and restorative justice. And basically, she had a partnership with the Pima County DA's office in Arizona, where they would funnel cases to her 
that were different kinds of sexual assault cases. It could be anything from masturbating in public to intimate partner violence. There were certain people that they excluded. I think repeat offenders they excluded and domestic violence incidents they excluded. But there were many serious sexual assault cases that were included. And the victims had to opt in. And that's the same with common justice. And then they went through a similarly rigorous restorative justice program. And then Dr. Koss did an empirical study where she went through the results of the program after it had been operational for a number of years and rated the same kinds of things, recidivism and victim satisfaction. And once again, her statistics showed that these cases had better outcomes in terms of how the victims felt, but also in terms of recidivism rates than what was traditionally happening if it went through a standard criminal adjudication process. Well, these results are fascinating. And these projects sound like you know, something to actually be optimistic about when it comes to trying to figure out how to balance this issue of um, how to serve victims best, but also even just when we're talking about public safety in future, if we're talking about lower recidivism rates and actually treating offenders such that they can, you know, be out in the community once more. Um, so this actually sounds rather optimistic, actually. <laughs> I feel optimistic about it in the sense that I think that these ideas are gaining traction. And the second piece that Bruce Green and I wrote is really about making this case to prosecutors who aren't only progressive prosecutors like Eric Gonzalez, but also to more mainstream prosecutors who are the vast majority of prosecutors in the U.S. to really have this idea gain traction and to have it be another tool in the toolkit that can be considered. And I I do really think that we are moving forward. And I'll just give you two examples. The American Bar Association's Criminal Justice Council just passed a restorative justice resolution urging this exact thing. And it's headed to the House of Delegates. So hopefully it will pass, but then we'll have a piece of public policy from the ABA that will be helpful. And we are just electing one prosecutor after another in rural counties and in major cities who stand firmly behind restorative justice and have it as a key part of their platform. So most recently, we elected a progressive DA in San Francisco, Chesa Boudin, and he pledged to offer restorative justice in some form to any victim who wants it. Well, fantastic. It's a a little bit of optimistic news in a time when we definitely need it. Well, thank you so much for... Yeah, right? It's like we definitely need that right now. (laughs) Any good news, any glimmer. I agree. Well, thank you so much for joining me and talking about this paper. Um, it is forthcoming in the Ohio State Journal of Criminal Law um, at any moment, it sounds like right now. Um, and congratulations on getting this published. Thank you so much. Yes, it's volume 17. Do not hesitate to read and download. Bruce Green and I would be grateful and excited for your thoughts and comments. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Get a break.